Hello everyone, it's me, Victoria Stapleton. I suppose I should say, it is I, Victoria Stapleton, for the Little Brown School and Library podcast because I am accompanied today by a woman who did something I could never do and get her PhD already. (laughs) (laughs) I am here with distinguished professor Terry Lesane of Sam Houston State University. I do not remember when I met Terry. Uh, It is lost to the sands of time and myth, or it feels as if we have always known each other. I think so. I think, but I think it was probably at a cocktail party, if I had to venture a guess, since we both tended to haunt those years ago, and you were just kind of walking around and came up and we started talking about something. I don't, I don't even remember. I think that should be an occasion of note that I introduced myself to somebody at a cocktail party when I didn't have a gun to my... Sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Usually the podcast, folks, uh, it is authors and illustrators talking about their work, but this is a wonderful opportunity at the Texas Library Association to speak to really, truly one of the mistresses of book reviewing and book evaluation, but really having a deep historical understanding of children's literature over the last, you want to say 35 years? Uh, Yeah, I could say 35 years, but there's always some discussion about how far we go back. Well, no, but your expertise. But my expertise, yeah. yeah. Um, 29 years at the university, and before that, 10 years as a middle school teacher. So, yeah. Yeah. Coming up on 40 years now. But you've been working in this field for a long time, and you've seen it all. I think so. Usually in person. And you know where many of the bodies are buried and how they got there. (laughs) And and I've learned things along the way. Yes. Not to say, what is this book to somebody who's the publisher of the book without, you know, knowing that. Or this is the worst book ever. Oh, you're the publisher. I'm really sorry. Look, if you're in publishing and you can't listen to somebody tell you this Mm -hmm. is the worst book ever, you you need to get a new gig. You need to get it. And as long as I tell you it's the worst book because, and I can delineate that it's not because I don't like it, because then we'd have lots more books on that worst book ever list. I don't have to like a book to understand that it's just fabulous. Yeah, so let's get into that more, because okay. I think, you know, you are known for doing a lot of reviews, but also training reviewers and training people to read literature for kids and young adults in a very sophisticated, not academic, but a very sophisticated, fluent level. What do you think is going on in the room next door that they are banging on that wall, and we will keep that in the podcast, but uh, because it's more interesting that way. But what do you think makes a really good book? In fiction, and mm-hmm. I, I need to start with fiction, yeah. uh, because I think the rules are a little different in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But in fiction, to me, it's voice, which is part of style, mm-hmm. I think. I'm looking for something that's distinctive. Yep. It shouldn't sound like every other book I've ever read. And so when you get to, I was telling uh, Libba Bray yesterday, Mm -hmm. when you get to her memoir in Hope Nation, I can hear her. Her voice comes through because I'm used to stylistically how she puts a story together. Mm -hmm. And even though I knew the story that was in Hope Nation, I I know about the accident and and losing losing her eye. It still just wounded me terribly. And I can't remember who said books should wound and stab us, but long ago somebody said that so to me that's voice and style uh, because style is word choice as well when I started reading who was it was it uh, Emmy Kerr who wrote under a pen name for a while wrote fantasy and I was reading it and I go boy this sounds like Emmy Kerr but it it says what what was she using Mary Shoemaker or something like that that, yeah. yeah and I just went it just sounds like Emmy Kerr and somebody said it is pen name But that voice just comes through. You can write under whatever name you want, Mm -hmm. but I know it's you. 
uh, and I think that the best in the business right now and back to the beginning uh, of YA have that distinctive style so that you know what it is that you're, you're reading just as soon as page one is done, you go, okay, that's Walter Dean Myers. He has a certain rhythm, a certain yeah. pace to his language. Gary Paulson has the uh, Ernest Hemingway kind of mm -hmm. rhythm to his words. So I, I look at voice and style, I think, first. And then after that, character development. You know, do I know these people? Would I care to know them? Or would I want to smack them? Something that arises, some mm -hmm. kind of emotion that it elicits. It's interesting. I Through a lot of these conversations, learning about how authors do that, I had a really fascinating conversation with Cressida Cowell of how to train your dragon, how to train your dragon fame, talking about that balance of voice and plot and character, which is, and thinking about these in three separate ways, especially in fiction where you have multiple characters and you need to give each one of them a different voice and how that evolves over time. Over the time or the reading of the book, do you think about these as perfectly balanced or do they have to be each in their season of the organicness how do you read that and where do you where does the scratch on the record come you know i i don't know that you can keep all three of them up in the air at the same time it's like yeah. juggling i think mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll turn to voice first and character i think next because i i can excuse a little thing in plot not yeah. a big hole that i can drive my truck through yeah but a, but a small little plot thing where I go, mm, I'm not sure that that's, and usually it's, I'm not sure that's the way the character would respond yeah. in this situation. So they're tied together intrinsically. You can't, it's nice to say I'll separate them out, but you really can't. Because no. the characters have to have their own style and their own voice as well. And I know that it's a careful craft. And I know that characters are built piece by piece the same way plot is. Mm -hmm. So they may, an author may get to a point where this is the character, and they're going to tell the story, and they get about halfway through, and they go, no, it's not that character's story. It's this guy I left back here. Mm -hmm. i got to go back. And now my plot is going to shift a little. My voice is going to shift a little. But this is the character that has to tell the story. And I appreciate authors who realize that. The late Joan Lowry Nixon mm. talked about writing her mysteries, and one night somebody appeared in her dreams and said, it's not my story. And she woke up and she rewrote, I think it was Whispers from the Dead where that happened. And, you know, it's one of my favorite books because it's just a good haunting set in Houston uh, kind of ghost story. And the kids love it, too. So, you know, it's sometimes that inspiration just comes out of nowhere or from a ghostly voice when you're me, which is kind of scary. <laughs> <laughs> but it is our, the dreams are the subconscious telling That's or right. something. Yes. To get all, I can't remember if it's Freudian or Jungian. Neither one is satisfying, so nah, let's leave that. I don't know. Like, <laughs> uh, one of the things I do look for when I'm reading a book is, does the organicness of the character justify the plot? So There's a believability factor, a psychological yeah. believability. Right. Is this, yeah, does the character, the character has to grow and change over the course of the story, of course, because that's what we want to show. Uh, it'd be really terrible if it's just this flatline character throughout mm -hmm. the story and that they just never go anywhere or do anything. Uh, that would be the kind of thing I would write, <laughs> kind of flat and uninteresting. But does the character grow and develop, but is there still room for growth at the end because they are an adolescent? In some books, you get to the end and there's this nice little bow, and they're done, the character's done growing, I probably would never run into them on the street. Uh, but when you read something like John Green, Abundance of Catherines, I know those people, and I know that they're not done 
uh, with their lives, that they're going to continue. And John doesn't do the disservice of tying it up in a bow. Mm-hmm. Um, Libba does the same thing, yep. uh, whether it's in her trilogies or just like in Going Bovine. We see change. It's gradual. It's incremental. It's not magical, although magic may be an element of some of her mm-hmm. stories, but it's still not a magical growth that we see. It's a real human kind of touch. And I guess maybe that's it. They have to be human in the in the fullest sense, that they have to be flesh and blood. They have to be, um, I don't know, able to be wounded. They have to be strong in certain situations. And I don't care whether their hair is strawberry blonde and they drive a roadster like Nancy Drew. Uh, <laughs> that, that was my Nancy Drew face. That was when I was 10. Uh, but now I want to know more about what do they do in a given situation. Mm-hmm. There's a question that's teasing around the back of my mind. Um, there's a lot of discussion of likability and relatability, but that's not super interesting to me. Uh, as I'm not always likable or relatable myself. But I wonder about respecting the book. And are you able to separate... Have you you had read books that you respected but did not like? Absolutely. And I'll I'll turn it sideways for a minute. Um, I always talk to my students when they say, this is a book everybody should read. And I say, no, let's stop right there and let's talk about The Bridges of Madison County. How many of you have read it? And of course, everybody's hand goes up. It was an Oprah book. We loved it. I said, it's about a woman who's having an affair and doesn't care about it. I said, I find it appalling. Did I read it? Yes, I did. Why? Because everybody else was reading it. and I wanted to be able to discuss it in terms like the plot and the character and whether or not I felt it was believable. So, you know, when you turn it the other way toward the YA end, because that was never meant to be a YA book, um, you've got to look at it and say, I don't care for this character, but I respect what the author's doing. We were talking about Bob Cormier mm-hmm. earlier, and The Chocolate War, I think, is a perfect example of uh, Brother Leon mm-hmm. is just this, oh, just the sleaziest guy in the world. I want to absolutely strangle him, and Cormier makes me feel that way by what Leon does, what he doesn't do, mm-hmm. and how he um, deals with the students in his class. I don't care for Archie but I respect that he is a master manipulator, but I don't care for him at all. And Jerry actually is kind of wimpish, uh, and I'm hoping that he gets not so wimpy by the end of the book. And that's Cormier's genius, 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 <laughs> to tell us these things. The Chocolate War really follows the logic and is, is unafraid of the logic that it sets up at the beginning. Another, I wish I should probably talk about some more little brown books for you, readers' books, but whatever. But I think about the first time I really saw this is actually when I was working at Harper and Michael Lawrence's book, A Crack in the Line. Haven't read it. Uh, well, but now I will write it down. Is one I should. Well, it's a, well, this is when I was working at Harper Collins. So, mm-hmm. you know, fifty pounds on one hundred twenty-five gallons of gin ago. <laughs> um, but that was the first of a trilogy, and what I appreciated by the end of that is the logic, the psychological and moral logic of what he set up in that first book was followed through all the way to the end, and the plot radically changed, but the emotional, psychological, moral logic of those characters took you to a place that was dark and not always pleasant, and allowed you to explore at the same time what those, what those choices are and those consequences were, but he was unafraid. To, to follow it all the way through. And I think frequently when I read YA or children's literature, I see the author, there's a certain point in the book, and that's a needle scratch for me, of 
oh, they figured out this is where it's probably going and they don't want it to go there. Right. Well, very like a um, boy toy. I mean, you talk about a book that just absolutely slams you into the ground and stomps on mm-hmm. you. But again, it's that ability to create a character who is so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you just want to say, how can you still be vulnerable? You've been through this once. Mm-hmm. Stand up for yourself. And I remember literally just kind of flinging the book at one point because I just I couldn't stand to see him get defeated. And I yeah. was really worried that he would be defeated by everything. And of course... YA is hopeful, so Barry gives you something hopeful to rest on. Uh, but in the meantime, what he presents is the truth as he knows it. Yeah, uh, but then also speaking of Barry, I Hunt Killers. Yeah. That's another book that really yeah. follows the logic of what that is. And that, I don't know that I find that, I don't know how much hope I'm finding in that book, that set of books. I don't know. Well, the, but the, that's the, the, main, the main character does kind of survive everything that's thrown his way. And of course, I like it because one of the characters is named after my granddaughter. I bought the right, <laughs> I, I bid on the right for that. So there's a like a sergeant, Natalie Finley, I think, who, who gets killed by the by the well, serial killer. yeah, but, but she's in there, <laughs> she's and in she there. thought that was really cool that she got killed. But I think Barry is fearless uh, in absolutely way of doing that, and I find it interesting to model at mm-hmm. a meta level, modeling that fearlessness and storytelling to teens as they're reading that sort of literature fearlessness and storytelling of writing their own stories. Well, those people who began, who we look at as the beginning of young adult literature, were fearless. Essie Hinton, Paul Zindel. Oh my goodness, Paul Zindel could Mm -hmm. write about anything. And he did write about anything, come to think of it, uh, and was absolutely fearless. And you'd think, what are you writing? Really, there's a story here? The Undertaker's Gone Bananas? And and, his later stuff, which I thought was really strange. Uh, but you look at Judy Bloom, mm-hmm. there's Fearless for you. And we were talking about Walter Dean Myers. And it is fearless when there are no other people for you to kind of follow as your, your mentor uh, because you're breaking new ground as the first African-American to really write about what it means to be an African-American in lots of different situations, mm-hmm. including going over to Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, that was just an incredible book that reminded us that, you know, that was really tough. And sometimes you have to present that toughness. You have to show kids how awful war is in order for them to understand um, the individuals that are being kind of played in here. I want to circle a little back a little bit because we've been talking about two masters, Bob Cormier. I mean, we've mentioned several masters, but Bob Cormier and Walter Dean Myers. Uh, and the concept of distinctiveness, which you began with thinking about distinctive voice, which is not always new. Distinctive does not mean new or unheard of before. Bob Cormier is, I don't think anybody, teens today don't read him, really. I don't know who among teachers read him or, or literature professors read him. And yet, truthfully, one of the most influential YA writers whose hand, unseen hand, even unread hand, <laughs> is everywhere present with us. And Walter Dean, who who has, was with us until recently, he's also in some ways fading a bit because he's not producing new. And where where is his influence? I mean, can you talk a little bit about where, because you've, one of the things I wanted, why I wanted you is because you have read all of these, and you're able to connect those influences almost as literary genealogies to well, what's going on now. 
you know, any history professor will say we've got to know the past in order to understand the present and maybe see the future a little mm -hmm. bit. And I think it's the same way with literature. And, and if you're taking YA literature from me, you will read Bob Cormier's Chocolate War, mm -hmm. and you'll read Monster, uh, mm -hmm. the first ever Prince winner by Walter Dean Myers. Not that I couldn't have picked 20 other books by mm -hmm. him, but, I, you know, in order for you to understand the Prince Award and the consequence of that and how that kind of made people see uh, the genius of Walter Dean Myers. Although, as you're right, as new authors come along, we tend to forget about uh, the forefathers. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's who they are. Without Cormier, you don't get John Green. You don't get Libba Bray. You don't get, I mean, fill in the blank with uh, the contemporary authors. Without Walter Dean Myers, you don't get Angie Thomas. You don't get some of the new uh, African-American, especially women uh, authors that are just mm -hmm. knock your socks off with their work. You don't get them because these are two men who kind of elevated YA to an art form to begin with. Can you have Ellen Hopkins without Dean Walter D. Meyer? No, you cannot. You cannot. And, you know, then there are lots of people that owe to, to Ellen Hopkins uh, because the, the idea of writing novels in verse was really, I mean, you, you got some earlier, you got Mel Glenn, and I think people have just totally forgotten his work, but he wrote a series of novels in verse uh, during the, must have been 80s. Mm -hmm. um, I've been mm -hmm. in this field for a long time. Um, so, you know, you don't get, well, you don't get the Poet X. There's a beautiful yeah. new novel in verse that's just knocking everybody just out because it's so beautifully done, unless you have a, an Ellen Hopkins that comes before. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there, there are lots, I think, who follow in those kind of footsteps. And it is kind of sad to me that unless you're taking a YA lit course, you might miss them, that they're prob probably part of the, the school collections that have been weeded. And that's so sad. What they need to be done is they need to come out, we need to book talk them, we need to give kids a reason. All you have to do is read the first couple lines of Chocolate War and that thing's gonna fly. Same with Monster, read yep. the first page. I can only cry at night when they can't see you and they don't beat you up then. I mean, just, and you just keep reading. And then the kids will just come back and go, well, what happens? You know, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? And you just say, I don't know. What do you think? And let's have that discussion. Then you can read The Giver and we'll have that same kind of discussion at the mm -hmm. end too. Because yeah. you don't know. Uh, although uh, she'll, be, she'll be happy to tell you, Lois Lowry says, he lives. What, what do you mean he dies? I read another book. Uh, <laughs> it's like before you wrote the other book everybody thought he died well he didn't you know so I like that I like an author who who does that is uncompromising doesn't doesn't tell you whether or not this person's going to be totally okay I mean Jerry's just don't disturb the universe don't eat the peach at the end is he going to be okay and I only worry about him because of what Cormier's done yeah. in the first 75 other chapters of the book is missing in YA right now that or or even younger kids right because yeah. I know you read middle grade a lot of middle grade well a lot of, of what still is missing is nonfiction and I'm not a big reader of nonfiction but I try to read as much as I can because mm -hmm. it seems to me there's a gap between like elementary and then YA mm -hmm. there's not a lot of middle grade stuff that kind of falls through the cracks there and I'm hoping people will come along and do that um, it's a good year for middle grade this year, but it wasn't last year. So uh, what has happened is we have all these terms now, and it just drives me nuts. Uh, we have young adult, and then they'll talk about middle grade, but that's different from middle school yeah. kind of books. 
and we're really muddying the waters there. And I wish wish people would stop because they're not the people that are muddying it are not people who are in my end of the profession. Because we talk about there's children's and there's YA, yeah. and we don't talk about new adult. We don't talk about any of that stuff, even though I do know it exists. We, we're yeah. looking about children's and YA, and there's that middle ground, and we'll just call it middle grade. Yeah. Uh, but if it's middle school, then they tend to be more YA. That is not. YA when you yeah. think about what middle school. Yeah, because is that's what we've up. done. Yes. We've, when I was in middle school, yeah. when I was. You know, I, I guess I think about these, you know, because we see a lot of of books that. I'll give this example. Some people believe The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt is a children's book oh. because the character spends much of his time as a ten-year-old boy. Yeah, I'm like, I'd like to ask you which 10-year-old boy you know behaves in that manner or mm -hmm. thinks that way. So I take a psychological test about these Well, things. then in that definition, Amelia Bedelia is an adult book because she's a grown-up. Yes. And I don't know too many grown-ups that read Amelia Bedelia. I mean, I, I enjoy her because she takes everything literally, and I like yeah. people that think at that level. Uh, but, yeah, it's not the age of the character. It's, it's not the situation in which he or she finds uh, himself or herself. It's... You know, sometimes it's quintessential. It's, um, is it Mertz and England, I think, wrote uh, an article, again, in the 1980s. That's where a lot of the scholarship started about the qualities of a young adult novel. Mm -hmm. But then Ted Hipple came along 10 years later and said, here's, here's what YA does. It does these three things, and we can hold it up to these three criteria. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's really nice, but it's still pretty complex um, when we read... Um, I mean, where do you put some of John Green is older? Where would you put Rob Thomas, who, before he went to Hollywood, wrote young adult novels and wrote some really fine novels like Rat Saw God? Yeah. Um, and, you know, where do you put those? And mm -hmm. I, there's a lot of discussion that, that we can have about that. I think, uh, well, I come down to the psychology because I have to sit in a room once a week and decide some of these things. And people ask mm -hmm. me, what well, was it a, a young adult novel? And we We've had cases where teen writers, people who are known for young adults, but we see the book, and I'm like, this is not a teen novel. And they say, why is it? And I said, this person already crossed that line of moral virginity. Mm -hmm. They have already made that first set of fully adult choices, and they are now having to take the consequences. And to me, in, in middle grade, a good middle grade characters come to understand the world is not arbitrary. Right. It is a function of decisions that adults make. They may be uncomfortable with the system, but they are not going to challenge the system. And there's a controlling adult authority somewhere in that book. In a YA book, this is where the characters understand the world is made by their choices. So it is family of birth versus family of choice, faith of my father's versus what I truly believe, and making that set of initial decisions. That set of initial decisions. A sort of moral virginity. I like that term. And that... Adult literature that is adult, for lack of a better term, is the literature of permanent regret. No, because <laughs> yeah. you can't I mean, make I, those choices. I, I, get, I get that. I really do. You cannot go back into you that You can't re-virginize yes. yourself. <laughs> I, sorry, kids. You really can't. Uh -uh. Um, thinking about the first story of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis, it ends with the angel and the flaming sword. There is no going back. Mm -hmm. Only forward and into the new set of choices that come into being from what you've already made. And I think that that's how I evaluate that when I'm looking at something that I've seen. You no, know, you're telling me that kid is 16. Inside, that kid is 36, which 
then sometimes when I'm reading Philip Pullman, the end of that trilogy, I'm like, mm, those ain't kids. Yeah. Those gr- ain't they're kids. They're grown-ups. They're definitely grown-ups. Yeah. And that to me is like, that's not a children's book anymore. And moves make the man. Um, go, yeah. Going back in time, Bruce Brooks, he really is much older than 12. But you yes. say 12 because 12 puts you in Newberry range. I mean, I don't think it's conscious on the author's part. Yeah. But still, you get a Newberry for that. Rather, and we didn't have prints back then yeah. either. Uh, and, so, but you know. Newberry goes to 14. Yeah. And But I find you need to have that sort of thing available because that age range, that 10 to 14, I mean, you can see 14-year-olds who are very, they're not ready to read YA. They're just not. But then you have me at 10 reading All the President's Men and Sidney Sheldon. And, I, I was reading Portnoy's and, complaint and, and not knew understanding what it, it, but I was. But reading. and but I knew and I but knew what knew. that meant. Okay. And just there's the all every child is different. Sure. So I wonder about the hardening of these. Well, when I uh, when I worry about when you say you know they're not ready for young adult, but that's what schools are doing. They're putting young adult down in fourth and fifth grade uh, because by the time they get to middle school, they have to be reading the classics, of course. So we don't have room for YA. But they're yeah. not reading the Chocolate War, so which th- is a that, classic. That's how they would miss the Chocolate War. They would miss the monster, or they'd read it in fifth grade, which is just as damaging yeah. as missing it totally. Because they're not ready for they're the moral, comple- for the moral and psychological complexities of what is going on in that book. And to me, why is the place where you play out all sorts of stuff? And some way readers may have already made some of these choices. Natalie read uh, Luna when she was about. 11 mm-hmm. just because she wanted to and I said yeah. read the flap first so you know what the book's about yeah. I like Judy Bloom. I don't say no uh, and she did and she said I just have one question and I thought oh how am I going to explain transgender to a kid and she said no does it end happily she knew enough about the literature yeah. to know that frequently in those early novels uh, bad things happen to people who were different yeah. who dared to be different uh, who dared to eat that peach going back to chocolate war uh, and she read Luna, and I think she got it yeah. uh, at, at that level, but she needs to go back now and read it as an adult uh, because there's a whole lot more inside her um, that, can, that can pick up things that maybe she missed the first time she read it. But I was really impressed that she kind of saw what was going on in the field at the time. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, but I don't want you to give me the detailed answer. Okay. Because <laughs> we'd be here too long. We'd be here too long. <laughs> You know, thinking about the influence of Cormier and Walter Dean Myers and a couple other people, do you think you see now some of these some of these current authors who will turn out to have that abiding influence? Gosh, I hope so. Um, you know, everything passes so quickly now. It's a Kindle book, and that's then it's why gone. I ask because I think in some ways the the format of reading is more quick, mm-hmm. but also. I mean, people really don't get that many cracks at the cracks at this anymore. I think if it's um, if they encounter a book that speaks to them at a very visceral level, that is a book that will continue to live for them and then for whomever they they touch yeah. along the way. I know that I think there are some authors where the books will remain and some authors where the books will fall off, and they should. You know, yeah, uh, we uh, we. We all read series books growing up. You know, Nancy Drew, I can tell you about Nancy Drew. I can tell you about Cherry Ames. I can tell you about Sweet Valley High. I can tell you about all of those things. But are those books that remain where I can tell you one story from another? No. no. Not at all. I can just paint very broad pictures. And I'm happy they were there because 
I could just keep reading yeah. over and over and over. But the ones that stay um, are the things like Walter, what Walter Dean Myers creates. And I think that if it's given to the kid, as I say, the right book for the right reader at the right time um, for my first book, if that's what happens, it stays. I had a, a young woman who's only reading before she got to um, young adult literature as an undergrad was the Bible. She was very, very narrow in her reading. And so I gave her monster, you know, just take it home, see what you think. And she came back and it was like her eyes, literally the scales had fallen from her eyes mm -hmm. and they were open. And I suspect that that's a book that's gonna stay with her for a long, long time if it's not still a book that stayed with her. But I also know then that there are books that people read and just kind of go, okay, I can say I've read it, The Goldfinch. I've read it. Do I think about it? No, not really. No. It that hasn't changed me. <laughs> <laughs> well, different, different strokes yeah. for different folks. I mean, that's the that's the whole thing. It's not not that one book for everybody. Yeah. Um, you know, people will say, "Well, Harry Potter," and I'll go, "Well, you know, there are people who don't like Harry Potter. <gasps> How can they not like Harry Potter?" Yes, I see you going. They would be me too. Um, but you know, I didn't say it. I just held my finger up. Yeah. That's okay. Thank you for but adding it's a, me on it's that It's okay one. for being outed because not everybody has to like it. And by book seven, it's like, okay, let's wrap it up. Um, and yet you're sad to see them go. But you also know that Harry's going to be okay, whether she writes another book or not, um, because he's had all that foundation. And I just, what I liked about it was um, all the motifs and archetypes yeah. and the things that you see. And again, when Natalie read that, um, she, she loved the books, but then she read C.S. Lewis and she said, C.S. Lewis stole from J.K. Rowling. And I said, no, it'd be the other way around. And she began to see yeah. in older books that those things existed. And there's another one. You know, why don't we talk about C.S. Lewis anymore? Because we don't um, often see him in children's or in YA. And, of course, some of his stuff is for adults, too. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you this question and maybe throw you for a loop because I didn't prep you for this <gasps> one. Do you ever pay retail for a book? Yes. What is the last book you paid retail for? It's the last one I downloaded, uh, Crown, the one about the boy and the haircut that won all those awards. I had not, I had not seen the book, and it's a small publisher, so oh, yeah. I knew the likelihood of finding it. So I downloaded it to my Kindle, and I read it, and I went, "Wow, I got to think about this one for a while, and why all the awards and what did people see?" And I love the book, and graphically, it's gorgeous, but I was unprepared for textually what it was about because I somehow thought it was something larger than life and it actually was just life itself mm -hmm. uh, but yeah I, I paid money for that and I've uh, I paid money for turtles all the way down two copies actually one autograph mm -hmm. one not um, <laughs> yeah if it's something I want to read and I want to read it now um, I'll do it I've paid money for speak the graphic novel mm -hmm. um, yeah I don't mind that I uh, usually close uh, some of my interviews with wanting to know what's the last book you wanted to throw across the room. Uh, but I think we'll let that be a hate that dares not speak its name. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to think lately what I've been reading, trying to catch up because of chemo brain, um, trying to catch up with my reading because it's difficult for me to read. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've been reading are really great things like graphic novels and, and novels in verse because I can take those chunks and so I've been reading The Poet X and uh, 
speak the graphic novel and uh, the dress, uh, the prince and the dressmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't really read anything that I wanted to throw across the room lately. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I don't have time to read those. No. Hmm. But I'll also throw a book across the room if I get upset, like when Crutcher kills a cat in his books, and I just throw it across the room and say, I'm tired of you killing cats in your books, Crutcher. Come on. Give me something else. Kill a dog. Kill a dog. Kill That's a dog. right. There we go. <laughs> and on that note of killing a dog, we'll end. This has been the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I am your hostess, Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing, and with me has been most distinguished professor, Dr. Terry Lesane from Sam Houston State University. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Victoria. Now let's go get a bail bondsman for the <laughs> Let's not need a bail bouncer. Oh, come lovely. on, that's no fun.